Lonsdale. Welcome to American Optimist. Honored to have my friend Kimball Musk joining us here today. Thanks, Kimball. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, really excited to talk about a lot of things you're doing, but I want to start off maybe with a little bit of your background. You, you guys grew up in South Africa. So yeah. w- w- when did you get the entrepreneurial bug from that? Or, or how, how? Yeah, I mean, we, we grew up in South Africa, super entrepreneurial. My, my grandfather, our grandfather, was he was an explorer in Africa. So he mapped, he'd take his, uh, his plane, uh, like a Cessna 182, and fly it over low, low over Southern Africa and map many parts of, of, of Southern Africa. He, he uh, was a winner of the Cape to Cairo race where you take a car and you basically just make it from Cape Town to Cairo. Uh, I, think he, I think that's how he won. He was the only guy that made it. Wow. And so that was in 1958. So very uh, pioneering entrepreneurial spirit. Did the car break down on the way and you had to fix it? Uh, or many times, many times. And, uh, and, and uh, starts out with you know 20 competitors and he was the only guy to finish. So, so that, that sort of cult, uh, culture we grew up with around... Uh, you know, getting out there, adventure, and I think entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism is all about adventure and going out and not knowing exactly what you're going to find, but uh, being willing to go for it. So why did you decide to come to Silicon Valley in the 90s? What, what, what sure, I mean, we, we, uh, we, we grew up in South Africa and um, tough, tough place to grow up in, apartheid, not a lot. Of, we, were, we lived in the, in the hometown of, of apartheid in Pretoria, which really not a, not a wonderful place to grow up. So we, we just fantasized about America and we 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 just looked at it like the promised land so there was no question that we were going to make our way to 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 America at some point I went to university in Canada in Queen's University my mother's Canadians my mother had a Canadian passport she, she was South African but had a passport and our, our family bizarrely the same guy who who toured uh, who, who mapped Africa he's an American from Minnesota Oh, wow, and and his dad was a sheriff in Minnesota. Oh, so you were American, South American African, pre uh, like back in the eighteen hundreds. Oh wow, and uh, and so so then he, he married his wife, who was Canadian. My mom was born, and two years later they moved to South Africa, and uh, and he, he that's what he did. He explored explored Africa. Wow. So we had this American sort of bug in our, our but frankly. The whole world loves loves and, and believes in the American dream um, so much so that that it's uh, for us it it was just not not a choice we we were we were going to find You're out. St- are you still it. bullish on America? I I love America. I mean I, I'm I'm a, always a, f- a, f- a believer that uh, show me a better place. Like I, I'm just I'm, I'm always always open to ideas. I mean I I like to say you know I I live in Colorado, which is a beautiful beautiful part of America. And uh, people will say to me, why, why do you live in Colorado? I said, well, because it's the best place. Uh, why do I live in America? Because it's the best place. And I'm an immigrant, so I can choose to live in Europe if I want to. Doesn't do it for me. I could live in China. Doesn't do it for me. Uh, these are interesting places. There's a few other places in the world to consider. But America is just far and away the best. And so you, so you came to America, and you guys started the company in Silicon Valley. You, you come to start the company. You started after you got here. What was no? The, we started it actually in uh, in Canada and Philadelphia. My, my brother was in UPenn, uh, and uh, I was in uh, in uh, Queen's University in Canada, and we started it up there. Elon went and did a summer job in Silicon Valley. I and but while we, but on the side, and I did a summer job in Toronto. Mm-hmm. On the side, we were we were w- working on our startup, which we built. The maps and door-to-door directions for the internet. It's called Zip2. Zip2, right? yeah, it was super, super cool technology. First to, we were the first two humans to see maps and door-to-door directions on the internet. I mean, it was jaw-dropping to see that this was possible, and uh, we we could not get 
investors. We couldn't get investors in, even in Silicon Valley in 95, they were, they were really still in the packaged software world of yep. you're supposed to put it in a cardboard box, it's sold at a store, yeah. and people upload it on their computer. The internet was a new thing. And uh, Toronto, was they were still stuck at, you know, at least 10 years behind Silicon Valley. And, um, and so I, I just had to make the, bite the bullet go down to Silicon Valley. My brother had to bite the bullet to not do his PhD. So that was sort of mid-95. mid, mid And then we kept working on it and um, uh, we had no money. We, we just, uh, we slept in our office because uh, we could pay rent either an office or a house. And we're like, we'll just do the office. <laughs> you guys, I heard you pretend that you weren't sleeping there. So yeah, well, you, you, it's not cool to uh, to sleep in your office. It's Landlord cool in retrospect. Yeah, cool in retrospect. In the moment, no, not 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 cool. Yeah. Also, your engineers don't want you, don't want to think, you don't want to think you're, because we had to hire a few engineers. Yeah, oh, I think you're homeless. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But um, it's still great memories, as you say. It's great in retrospect. Um, but the, uh, uh, what happened between 90, sort of middle of 95 when we committed to it to January of 96 was this realization of the internet was sort of hitting. And we, we had been working on this business for a year at that point and um, committed ourselves entirely to it. And all of a sudden, we had VCs knocking on also everyone wants to give you money oh my goodness we went from begging for dollars to looking at term sheets with millions of dollars we were 22 and 23 years old just couldn't believe it these guys are crazy like uh, (laughs) (laughs) and um who'd you end up raising from uh more david out oh very cool yeah and it was a a good firm uh we had a lot of options uh we liked those guys and um it uh it was it was an interesting time and we were young Young entrepreneurs, not we really didn't know what we were doing. But what, we were pretty, what made you trust those guys more than others? Like, what, what, how'd you how'd you choose a VC when you were that young, and how would you do it differently now? Um, I, I think we made a good choice. I, I think good question. How I would do it differently? I, I I would do it based on which partner, not the firm at all, but which partner you you feel like will be the best. Uh, the best best partner at the firm. Yeah, that you would be the best partner with you at the, the person business. matters. The more person more matters entirely, one hundred percent. And you can get a great firm, and you can get a weak weak partner, or just the wrong partner, or you can get a, a firm you've never heard of, and you can get a great partner. So I, I think that that's that's absolutely what I would focus on, and I think we did okay that way. I I I can't speak for the ones we chose not to work with because um, I don't really remember who they were, but. Mm. Um, but I, I, we felt good about them. In fact, uh, George Zachary is a good friend of ours. He 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 was with More David out at the time, and uh, he wasn't the partner that we ended up working with. But in general, uh, that was the culture, and it was it was a good yeah. good group. Awesome. So so you guys crushed. You sold Zip Two in '99, and I understand you enrolled at the French Culinary Institute. A lot of us like food and we admire, but you usually went all in. You actually enrolled at the institute. How, how did that yeah, come about? Yeah. So we sold Zip Two in '99. It was a great time to sell. Uh, it was an extraordinary time. Uh, they, uh, we were acquired by Compaq that owned AltaVista. They wanted to merge Zip2 and AltaVista together. Yep. And then it would be a Yahoo killer. Yep. So we sold our company for $300 million in cash. At and the they, time, that was a lot of money. Actual cash. Like, not, <laughs> no stock, no, no. Wow. They would not give us stock. Wow. It was, it was such a surreal time where they would not give us stock. Wow. They wanted to own the stock because everything was just going through the roof. Yeah, skyrocketing. Yeah. And... They merged AltaVista and Zip2, and then Yahoo ended up buying it six months later for what was our, our what our share of the company was worth a billion. So we we felt wow. like we so felt like you got, got gypped, we kind of got got uh, well. We I mean you can't really argue with the cash, but um, 
But we were like, oh my goodness, we really lost out here. Did you take the money and invest it into tech stocks at all? Well, the time? I, I invested in PayPal and, you know, I, I mean, it's not no, just Tesla and so forth. I'm not at all worried about uh, my, my, my outcome. But then, amazingly, of course, the bubble burst six months later and yep. it, it, it was a, just an extraordinary time. Yeah, well, so, PayPal's one of the few things that lived through the, yeah, the bubble burst. Exactly, so you did a exactly. good job with that one. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think that I can't really complain about uh, the situation. It was a wonderful, interesting time. But I, my passion was a culture, food, people, gathering. And Palo Alto is a place where people work. They work 24-7, mm -hmm. and some of the best companies in the world are built out of that culture. And I, I wanted a place where I could experience people where we had things to talk about that weren't just the work. So we there was better work-life balance at the French Culinary Institute than there was. Well, in no, Palo Alto. actually, not at all. No? Actually, those guys are terrible at work-life balance. <laughs> uh, in the fact, it's more like full metal jacket. Really? Uh, oh so my God, so it's a hardcore. It's just, I used to say, I'm gonna go get screamed at for six hours. Wow. It's so, so intense. It's more New York. I wanted to go to New York. I wanted to see a different part of America. Uh, again, I'm an immigrant, so for me, I wasn't beholden to any particular place. So for- It's probably more fun to, to be successful and young and single in New York than Paul Walter. Yeah, I wasn't people. single. I was, I was, oh, okay. I was my girlfriend and we ended up getting okay. married and stuff. So it was, it was, it was, but it was a wonderful time to be in New York. And um, uh, signed up to be in the French Culinary Institute on the advice of a, of a friend of mine and, and my wife at the time, uh, which was, you gotta have something to do in New York or New York will consume you. And so I said, okay, well, I always wanted to cook, so I'll, I'll go sign up for this. Are you a much better chef now because of oh this? Oh my God, this, this, the training is amazing. They break you down, they break, they, they, they make you cry. Like it's literally to that level of, of torture. And, and then they build you back up again. And it's, wow. uh, it's, it's old school, kind of Gordon, Gordon Ramsay style of teaching. Were you already really passionate about food before? Always, it, I grew it, up cooking for my family, loved cooking for my friends in college. Was, was really, that was my, my sort of gift to my, my, my friends and family and uh, continues to be to this day. And so I was like, let me go do this, not with any intention to do a restaurant. Um, but I actually, well, I had the most incredible thing happened to me. I graduated in August of 2001, a few weeks before 9-11, and uh, was in downtown, about Chambers and Broadway, right 10 blocks from the World Trade Centers. Wow. Woke up to the sounds of the planes hitting the building. Wow. Like the first one hit, and I was like, what is that? And, uh, the doorman was sort of screaming, the plane hit the building, plane hit the building. And I was like, some, some idiot just flew a plane into, into the building. I'm like, you know, you're in New York, so everything is, you see what's you're so thing. jaded in yeah. New York, like whatever. So I, I, have, I go take a shower. I tell, tell my, my girlfriend at the time, my wife at the time, uh, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go get, some, get us some coffee at the deli across the road. Go down, down the elevator, I come out of the elevator and the doorman said, another plane hit the building, another plane hit the building. All this time, I could have looked out my window and seen the World Trade Center's burning, but oh, I just didn't. You just missed it. Wow. I just didn't look at it. Went across to the deli, and weirdly, there's 30 or 40 people in line in the deli, which that's just not normal. Yeah. So I think everyone was kind of freaking out a little bit. They didn't know what to do, but no one was panicking. And I, I uh, put my dollars down. I, I skipped the line because they, they know me. I, I'm there, there all the time. I get my coffee, and as I'm paying, the, the on the radio, they say the Pentagon was was hit by a plane. So then, then you knew. Holy moly, the, the panic just sets in. Everyone just starts running. Wow. Um, I run upstairs, you know, not using the elevator, grab my, grab my wife, we run down, we just start running. And we wow. get to Canal Street by the time the first one falls. 
well, we do, you don't see it fall because, again, you have tall buildings in front of you, but you just see this giant wall of dust coming towards you, stopped about half a block from us, thank goodness. Cops and other people just driving out of the cloud of dust, just covered in white dust. We get to Union Square, we see the second one fall, and you have like a direct view of it falling, and it was like reality breaking. And so anyways, so I, 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 uh, I we, we hold up in my mother's place, and about seven days in, they, they start calling for volunteers to cook. My mother's a well-known dietitian. They call her up, say, hey, we wanna offer a volunteer spot, because everyone wants to volunteer. It's a very, very, that's the thing to do. And she said, well, you know, my son can cook. I, she can't. And he and they're like, well, what, what is his credentials? Just had a diploma in oh, front cool. of the French Culinary Institute. So I got that, and then uh, I had a security pass because I lived so close to the ground zero. So I ended up cooking for the firefighters for six weeks, like every day, 16 hours a day. Wow. Starting peeling potatoes all the way to driving ATVs of coolers of delicious food down to them. And, you know, you feed the firefighters, you see them walk into this gymnasium that's converted to a cafeteria. It was really satisfying as a way to at least oh contribute. Oh, my God. You know? It was just wonderful. You know, just wow. – to, they come in like kind of covered in that dust, that ugly dust, that the yeah. world ground zero dust. And and then they they take their shells off and they start eating food and they're not even talking to anyone. And then the life just starts coming back into them. Yeah. It's beautiful. And just after that, uh, after that experience, I was like, you know, I, I just got to do a restaurant. I just I just love this. That's this awesome. is just awesome. There's a sense of sense of giving that to others, giving that energy to others. Creating that yeah. feeling of community, of, of connecting people with, through food. Uh, it took this concept of, of uh, food at the gathering place to a whole new level, of course, 9-11 being, of course, the most extreme you could imagine. And then we opened, I, I did a road trip around the U.S., founding a pl place. That's how I found Colorado. So Colorado's awesome. Yep. And I did a road trip in February, you know, when it's the worst time of the year. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, Boulder, Colorado is right on the mountains, crisp air. It can be a little cold in February, but it's, it's very nice and sunny. So, and it's a great restaurant town. So opened a restaurant called The Kitchen in uh, in Boulder. It's still there today. It's considered one of the top and, restaurants in the country. And, and you're obviously a very ambitious entrepreneur, so you've done a lot of restaurants now. Yeah, yeah I've done 16 restaurants now. So, uh, although, unfortunately, because of COVID, we we might come out of this with eight to 10. Um, it's, been, it's been a tough tough year for the restaurant industry. Well, I think sure. one of the, the, oh my God, more than tough, like a nuclear bomb has gone yeah. off. Um, and I think the the challenge as well is when you have restaurants in Colorado you can drive to, uh, that you can manage. But when you have to fly and you have to manage people from a distance. During COVID, that's it's very difficult. impossible. Yeah. And so, uh, so the ones out of state, we had to close. And we're going to reopen a few. We just opened Chicago. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but it's not going well, I'll be honest. It's very, very, very quiet right now. Downtown... Chicago, downtown Denver, no offices, no business travel, no tourism. Yeah, I feel for the independent restaurant community, and um, uh, it's 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 going to be a tough tough return. Uh, there's a uh, there's a beauty to it, though. I mean, we we all are in the business. No one's in this business to make money. It's you're in this business because you love it. Yep. And there's that that love that will will bring it back. And 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 you're you're obviously very passionate about food and in other areas as well. You you you're recently announcing a. A, a new program in this area. Yeah, we uh, we just announced um, the Million Gardens movement, and uh, you can go to million million gardensorg and there what we're doing is we we're building we're we're distributing gardens to 
We hope to a million homes this year in North America. You've done this with schools and others before too. Yeah, so Big Green, our nonprofit, uh, is a nonprofit. It's been around 10 years, and we build these beautiful outdoor classrooms on school grounds, about 2,000 square feet in size, shade structures, raised up, irrigation's built in, easy to manage, beautiful, beautiful part of the school. And we've done 700 of those around the country. And, and what's the impact of those? Why is, why oh, that's amazing. So we focus on K through eight, kindergarten through eighth grade. In fifth grade, if you teach a science lesson, the same science lesson in the garden versus the classroom, you see a 15-point increase on a 100-point scale wow. in test scores. So you can just pay attention. They're more inspired. Absolutely. It's experiential. You're getting your hands dirty. Your, your sun is shining. It's, you're just, you're just a more, much more awake as a, as a person. But then you're, it's experiential, so you'll never forget it. Uh, and then, yeah, and then of course, on the food side, you can double their intake of fruits and vegetables. So, oh wow, so there's the, a lot of people. The impact is extraordinary. In wow. fact, the studies will come out of Austin, uh, Austin, Texas. Hmm. So uh, there's a, a, a famous um, group called the Rainwater Foundation that that did, did. They were kind of pre Big Green, you know, in the 2000s, and and um, the foundation's still around. But the the idea of a proper outdoor classroom is sort of their sort of idea, uh, in addition to folks like Alice Waters and so forth, but these guys were more scalable. And so we, we borrowed from them, we borrowed from Alice Waters Edible Schoolyards to learn what could work. And we achieved you know a scale of 700 pre what, what are the types of fruits and vegetables that you guys grow? With? Yeah, so uh, we love to grow things kids love to eat. So we'll do a pizza garden where it's tomatoes cool. and um, it's, uh, uh, we just do cherry tomatoes throughout, and we'll do mm. a, a larger tomato so they can actually taste the difference um, and, and get a feel for that. Um, we'll do a salsa garden with cilantro and onions. And, and so we really try to speak to the, speak the language of the kids, yeah. and it's super fun. Um, so, so we so, do so, that. So now you're going to try to get a million of these around the country. Well, one of the things we dealt with with COVID is all the schools are shut down. Yeah. So last year, we, we created these gardens. They're about 12 inches wide, 12 inches high. And you can still grow quite a bit of food in there for good soil and good seedlings. And we distributed 5,000 in Chicago, 1,500 in Memphis as a test. Hugely successful. Families lined up around the corner to, to get them. And we're like, wow, we're really onto something here. Let's, let's uh, see what we could do to bring it to more people. And at the same time, Modern Farmer, the, the magazine, reached out to us and said they want to do this Million Gardens movement. So it was kind of a perfect blend of... of of two groups, they have a wonderful uh, community of, of readers that care about the subject. We have distribution in, in low-income areas where we work in, in these schools. And so together we formed the Million Gardens Movement and um, it's off to the races. We just, we have these post billboards we did with Harrison Ford, with Selma Hayek, with Zoe Deschanel, several others. What do you encourage, are you encouraging people to build them at their homes or are you encouraging people to contribute to them? What's the- Yeah, so, so anyone listening to this podcast should go to million-gardens.org and donate $10, $20 towards getting gardens into the homes of uh, in, uh, underserved families across America and, and Canada. Uh, we're hoping to do Mexico as well. Um, and eventually we'll go international, but that's where we're focused for now. So go to million-gardens.org. Awesome. And um, uh, it's a beautiful uh, program. We're gonna do potatoes in the spring. So when you, when you harvest potatoes, it's like digging for gold. So it's, we think it's the most <laughs> fun one for us to do in these these sort of little green gardens. And uh, and then we're gonna do tomatoes in June. 
We'll do that around the, the so summer. You're going to send the seeds to people to help them with this, or how's it? We work? will. They actually pick up the garden itself, so it's a, oh, wow. it's a, it's ca you can carry it with with two hands. Oh, great! And and these are low income communities, so they're walking there. So you got to be able to walk it back. Yeah. And it's a fun thing to do with your kids, and as we distribute through the schools. That's great. Um, and then actually in Chicago, uh, the food shelter is partnering with us, and what they're going to do is they're going to give away a a package of food with the little green garden. So you don't just get to grow it, you get a, it some well. healthy food to eat as well. So that's wonderful. And uh, and then in, in the fall, we'll do fall vegetables. And so Million Gardens Movement is just uh, is a super exciting thing. We're able to do it, whether it's COVID or not, this is the kind of thing we think will reach a lot of people. It's very inspiring. So Kimball, you're you're also a board member at both Tesla and SpaceX. I guess I probably can't ask you what's your favorite one, but what are you excited about with these companies right now? I mean, honestly, it's such an honor to be part of those two amazing companies. So proud of my brother for his his ability to, I mean, I think he's the world's greatest engineer and entrepreneur and uh, just so honored to be able to have a front row seat there. Uh, both companies are great. I think that uh, what I love about Tesla is it's really an American-made company. And it's uh, in, in the car world, that's first time in 100 years. So yeah. it's it's uh, there are some startups coming along and hope and I wish them the best, but Tesla is like a real car company. A lot of people said it's impossible to start a new car company. Totally, we heard that forever, and um, uh, we still kind of hear that occasionally. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> um, people still don't believe it. You've but, had profitable quarters now. Though. I mean, that's <laughs> right, pretty exactly, good. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but we're going to open the factory in Austin. It's going to be a game changer for the city. I'm very proud of that. It's amazing. You guys have this giant building you're building there really yeah. fast. I was talking to Omid about yeah, well, the Yeah, the whole day. thing done in, uh, in about a year, 12 months, at a 15 million square feet factory and hopefully have cars being produced there within, you know, by the end of 2021. You know, it's pretty amazing. It's so inspiring. People thought people in America couldn't build things that yeah. quickly. Like, How do you guys change the culture to get that people to work that hard and that quickly? Well, I think my brother just looks at it from a first principle point of view where why not? Why can't you do that? Uh, it's just pylons in the ground and walls and steel and the, the there there there's a culture in building in America that is very slow mm -hmm. and um, uh, it isn't necessary I mean maybe there are reasons you might do it but in the case of Tesla we've built several of these factories already so we, we don't we don't need new plans or new permits or sorry not permits we don't need to rethink the ideas we're just yeah. optimizing from our previous learnings but for the most part we know what we're doing and so it shouldn't take five, 10 years to build a factory. We found the city of Austin a great partner. They moved very fast, enabled us to build a factory um, in Austin city limits uh, at a speed that just uh, is even, it's shocking to any any manufacturing person, even in China would be shocked. It's, it's, no, it's, it's amazing. And, and, and what are you excited about over the next 10 or 20 years there? What should we expect to see? Yeah, I'm excited about uh, just an amazing American company building not just the best cars in the world, but electric cars, better for the environment. Uh, the the uh, autonomy is gonna come and uh, how does that change the way we live, the cities we, we're in? I'm, I'm very excited about that subject. So, and I, I just think that it's gonna be, a, 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 it's only the, just the beginning of what, of what, it's, gonna, what it's gonna create. And, and let's go to SpaceX for a little bit. Sure, obviously yeah. had, you know, Starlink's very exciting. I, one of my favorite things with SpaceX, other than going to Mars, is that you can maybe hop around on the planet really quickly. Is, yeah. that, is that a real thing that's gonna come in the next decade or two? Or what's, what's the timeline I mean, on that? I so, mean, so the, uh, the ability to land a rocket is new, right? So yes. that's literally in the past three years that my brother's proven it can be done. 
safely and consistently over and over again. And so it's similar to an airplane 100 years ago, you know, when they first took off with an airplane. Still a little think, risky. They didn't think about the landing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, so you, want, you want to wait a while until they really think about, thought about the landing. So give, give SpaceX a few years, they, they'll be really consistent and, and uh, 100% success. And once they're that consistent, maybe people should start thinking Why about it. Why not? I mean, if you, if you look at Starship, it's, big, it's the actual fuselage is bigger than a 747. So you, you theoretically could carry hundreds of people. Yes, exactly. And you take off in Texas and you land in Australia 30 minutes later. That's amazing. You think that could actually get to the point where it's cost competitive? I don't think it's going to be a cost thing. I think it's, it's speed just thing. whether or not SpaceX chooses to prioritize it. My brother is so passionate about Mars that that's where his uh, his love and and his his uh, his energy is going. Uh, and as a side project, or maybe as a way to finance Mars, he might do that as well. So Starlink and and maybe transportation could finance the Mars. Yeah, station. exactly. So it's really about Mars for him, and always has been from. 20 years ago when he started the company. What are what are other ways to, to monetize the space industry actually? Do you have, what are the other ideas that you can share? Uh, you know, I think that we just don't really think about monetization that much at SpaceX. It's, uh, it's, it needs to be cash flow positive. It needs to generate value. It needs to be a good thing for the world. Well, it needs to make money in order to get it to Mars. It can't finance Mars if it's costing money, so exactly. for sure. And um, and my brother really got to a point where he, he ran out of capital back in 2008. And yep. Thank goodness, NASA, our partner in the government, you know, came through with a contract that that kept us alive. I, I, I remember right around that time. I think uh, I, I got to co-invest along with Founders Fund. I think the oh, year cool. after. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Thank you guys for coming good. in and yeah. helping the company get through that tough time. But the the truth is, it's expensive uh, to to build rockets, and and it takes a long time to make money. And it just never really had that culture of of well, this has got to be a money maker. It's more about it's got to finance getting to Mars, and not just the. Getting to Mars, you want to make sure that you get there and succeed. You want to build a colony. You want to you want to bring people there. You want to inspire people, and and that means excellent engineering. You're going to be the hire the best people, and so cash flow, a positive business is critical. But it's not about monetizing space. Makes sense, and, and think well, of course we need to make money to get the mission to work. Exactly. That's how a lot of our companies yeah. all work. Now, speaking of going to Mars and building building new society or new cities on Mars, uh, you know, you and I are both very interested in the idea of new cities and how yeah. cities should work. This is something you've been thinking about for a while. Yeah, totally. I mean, autonomy has really gotten me thinking a lot about new cities. You know, what do you do? What What does a city look like when you don't need the car, or 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 you have a car, but it's not it's not you're not built your life's not built around it because with autonomy, and then you also look at the Zoom uh, revolution of people being able to work from home or have more flexible working environments. Okay, uh, maybe you don't need to do that commute every day. Maybe you need to do it three days a week. Okay, well, how does that change the city you live in? You don't need a car. You can get it whenever you want one. Okay, you just pull out your Tesla app and it comes to you when you, when you need it, and then it goes away when you don't need it. And you think a lot, obviously, about making things more green with how the homes are designed. Is, is I mean, for I, I, my vision of a, of a town would be uh, very little roads, uh, other than emergency access for fire trucks and ambulance, things like that, trash. But um, and then a car could come use those same um, sort of emergency alleys to come pick you up. But uh, then the rest of it would be parks, greenways, growing foods, food, fruits and vegetables growing throughout the town. Uh, that to me is a much more beautiful use of space than asphalt. And your and your sense of for you with food is about community. It's about well, community. Of I'm, I've, so I've how always, we build yeah how we build a town and make community work better. Yeah, exactly. And for me, food is a is a wonderful way to build community. A town with the right energy, the right design, really thinking about uh, how do you get people to gather more often? How do you get people to 
connect with each other? How do you create spaces that are both uh, what's called competitive play, where you might kick a ball around, or cooperative play, where you might you know get on a swing together? You know, and that's sort of that what that's the language you use in schools, where you're always trying to make sure you can have both. In a town, you want to, you want to be able to uh, listen to music together, and you might want to you know sit in a park and play chess with someone. And there's like it's, you really want to curate activities. And we really lost that in in towns. If you look at older towns, Boulder is a good example. There's a lot of activities downtown um, that that kids can do, adults can do, that are built into the downtown. But if you go to a modern day town, which is built around the car, it's very soulless. Uh, you kind of live in your house, get in your car, go to the office, and that's kind of your life. It's uh, I call it pod living. You're in your home mm-hmm. pod, then your car pod, then your office pod, back to your car pod, home pod. You don't even know who your neighbor is. Uh, you never walk outside and, and yep. just go for a walk. I want to. I want to. I mean, if if I get involved in city planning, which I love, and I love, love the idea of that, I want to help cities be more about connecting with each other and and connecting with your neighbor and getting to know people. That's awesome. And yeah, a lot of people are pretty cynical about the direction things are going. You think this could bring more optimism into our society to rebuild these communities? I am. I am just the greatest optimist ever. Um, the. Uh, um, I mean, it's almost to a fault, uh, but it, frankly, almost is an important word because it's not. But it's but it's so much so that that uh, uh, if you're a pessimist and you hang out with me, you'll probably stop hanging out with me after a while. Uh, <laughs> either that, or you'll have to stop being a pessimist. But uh, I'm a, I'm a real optimist. I think America is the place where we solve problems. You know, we 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 tackle things like climate change. We tackle things. That we do it in a way that is scalable. We do it in a way that that makes sense financially. We don't. We're not relying on government to solve these problems because they, they do need to play a role. They, and, and Biden will, will, I think, play a great role in that. And I, the previous administration really, really was fighting against the natural flow of things. It made, made no sense. Even the, the most hardcore capitalists were working on this. Um, and so I do think the administration makes a big difference. But uh, the real way things get done in America is through individual contribution, entrepreneurship, and those individuals contribute in a way that helps the overall society get better. And I think that's, we, we're gonna solve things like income inequality that way. We're gonna solve things like homelessness that way. We're gonna solve things like how, where, the, how cities are built that way. We're gonna solve all of these problems and we're gonna do it the American way. So we need to train more entrepreneurs and builders who will focus on the problems that matter. And yeah, I mean, um, you know, um, homelessness is a real challenge in America. And uh my, my daughter actually uh, asked me, hey, we should try and solve that with our foundation. I'm like, you know, money's not gonna solve this problem. You could solve this problem. Do you wanna dedicate your life to solving this problem? And she might think about it. You know, she's young, still in high school. But, but the point is that, that people solve problems in America, and I love that. And uh, the money follows people to solve a problem. And, and I think the, the, that attitude keeps me very optimistic about America and Love the future we're all headed towards. That's a very inspiring uh, vision. Thank you very much, Kimball, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Stand up. Yeah. Oops, now I banged my leg. <laughs> <laughs> Not awkward. <laughs> Not awkward at all. That hurts. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.